Hello and welcome to the Lit English English Lit podcast. Today it is time to look at the longest scene in the play, comfortably the longest scene in Hamlet. We are talking about Act Two, Scene Two. Really excited to have you along with me today. And this scene is so long that we're actually going to split this into two separate podcasts. We're going to look at the first 400 lines or so today, and then tomorrow we're going to look at the last kind of third of the scene. So a lot to get through today. This will probably be a fairly long podcast, but really meaty. Lots of really important stuff. If you're following along with David Tennant, this、uh, this scene goes from 49 minutes and six seconds all the way through to one hour 26 minutes and 22 seconds. But in the middle, it takes part from takes part of Act Three, Scene One. So Hamlet's to be or not to be speech, and the Gert,、uh, the Ophelia, get me to a nunnery, get thee to a nunnery. That's all included, kind of in the middle. So you'll kind of have to see that you'll see that as、um, as we go on. So really excited that you're with me.、Uh, it's really our first time we have an opportunity to see Hamlet's antic disposition. We really are seeing. Probably, if not for the first time, certainly most dramatically, how so many people here have a hidden agenda or an ulterior motive. It's really hard to tell who's being honest and genuine, and basically no one is. So, stay with me. So, guess what we have in this scene? We have yet more references to spying and surveillance. What a shock! This time, of course, it is Claudius, and he is going to be using, and that's actually the phrase he uses: "Use you." Slightly poor choice of words, because he really is using Rosencrantz and Guildenstern as as pawns. And yes, Claudius is using these two childhood friends of Hamlet's to spy on him, basically find out what's going on, try and make him feel better, and then report back to him. Claudius interestingly can't seem to fathom that grief is what's led to Hamlet's, as he calls it, transformation, which is a pretty dramatic word to use. I mean, it 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 makes us realize that Hamlet really has changed, and、um, to the point where Claudius really feels, and Gertrude too, of course, feel like they've got to do something about it. I find though Claudius's concern so fake. And hollow. I mean, surely this is mock incredulity. I, he really just needs an excuse or a way to observe Hamlet, and I, I wonder if at this point he suspects that Hamlet knows something. But either way, it's interesting how both he and Hamlet are finding rather creative, if not particularly, you know, effective ways to watch each other. Uh, we then also are introduced for the first time to Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. They are basically essentially interchangeable. In fact, it seems as if Claudius mixes them up、um, very early in the scene. He thanks Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, and, and、uh, Gertrude corrects him. No, it's Guildenstern and Rosencrantz. So、um, that kind of adds to their. I don't know. They're not particularly comic characters, but they certainly are characters. Again, similar to Ophelia and Gertrude, with with very little agency. They are they are kind of pulled between、um, people that they are with. They are supposed to be serving Claudius, and then they're also supposed to be kind of helping Hamlet. 
We then have the return of the, the two, of the ambassadors from Norway, and this little interlude serves two purposes. Um, it reminds us that Claudius is a diplomat, not a warrior, right? He has been able to solve, to, to come up with a diplomatic solution to the problem of young Fortinbras, who was preparing to invade Denmark. And, of course, that is in contrast with old Hamlet, who just went to war with old Fortinbras. And it also keeps young Fortinbras in our thoughts. Like Hamlet, he's a young man who wants to avenge the killing of his father. And, and the parallels between him and Hamlet we're supposed to kind of keep track of as the play goes on. We also have a brief but significant aside between Gertrude and Claudius. Um, this is one of the only few conversations between the two. So this starts of starts on line 57. And there's a brief, it's only about five lines, but it's a significant aside because, like I said, it's one of only a few conversations they have. And it's also where Gertrude shows that she actually knows. It's the mother's instinct, right? She knows why Hamlet's behaving erratically. She says, I doubt it is no other but the main, his father's death and our oh, hasty marriage. And uh, the king says, well, we'll see, right? He is inclined to believe Polonius. So that's really what we see kind of the first part of this particular scene, right? We see more evidence of spying, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern being used by the king, and then a little bit of an aside that gives us some insight into the relationship that Claudius and Gertrude have. You know, it's interesting, we don't know very much about their relationship. Whenever they appear on stage, they appear with other people. They very rarely are on their own. And so we have to kind of read very closely what they, how they work. And, and clearly, Claudius is in charge, right? Gertrude has her, Gertrude has her opinion. And Claudius is, is no, we're, we're moving on with what Polonius has to say. I'd like to take a couple of minutes now to look at the role of Polonius in this scene. And overall, Polonius's role in this scene is one of providing comic relief. In fact, this is his role in the play overall. Now, we, of course, see many things. His character, for example, is important. The things that he says is important. His, his role in the plot itself is important. But as a character, he is almost the antithesis of the wise old man archetype. Shakespeare particularly in tragedies, likes to give us a character who provides those moments of levity, those, pro those moments of, of humor, particularly when the, most of the content is heavy and the mood is dark. So in Romeo and Juliet, the two that fulfill this mode, uh, this, this role best are the nurse and Mercutio. So naturally, these characters will serve as a foil to whichever character is on stage with them because most of the time they are more light-hearted versus the others who are more heavy-hearted. So he launches Polonius, starting on, I think, line around 90, launches into this bumbling speech that contrasts heavily with Gertrude's concern and impatience because she wants to hear what he has to say and his point of view. And she's already a little bit skeptical of, of what Polonius has to say because she has her own thoughts on why Hamlet is behaving the way he is. 
Uh, Polonius starts off by saying, I will be brief, right? That's the first thing he says. That's rather ironic because 60 lines later, he's still speaking, then says, uh, oh, and a short tale to make. So he is clearly unaware that he is being long-winded. So there's some dramatic irony, certainly some irony there. He also claims um, to Gertrude, because Gertrude says, look, more matter, less art. In other words, get to the point quickly. And Polonius says, I, I use no art at all. Right? He claims his language is totally natural. It's not. Even those of us who are not particularly... Um, you know, adept at, at reading Shakespeare. She really should be picking up on the the convoluted, overly complicated language that Polonius uses. And just to, if you just hear it read out loud, it's, it's clear. He also uses a lot of literary devices. I don't know if that is kind of part of the the overly complicated way that he writes or whether or he he speaks or whether it's just Shakespeare having fun. Line 95, there's a great example of Zugma. Why day is day, night, night. Uh, lines 105 to 106, good example of chiasmus and anadiplosis. He says, "'Tis that he's mad, tis true, tis true, tis pity, and pity tis, tis true. Uh, Polypototon, line 110 to 111, he says, or rather say the cause of this defect, for this effect defective. So you've got defect and defective there for polypototon. And then epanalepsis on line 112, he says, thus it remains, and the remainder thus. So thus, ending with thus, kicking some polypototon just for good measure. So lots of literary devices with the occasional flash of insight. He says, to define true madness, this is line 101, to define true madness, what is it but to be nothing else but mad? Which gets to that question that I've been saying multiple times during these podcasts. How do you tell when someone else is mad? And actually, isn't it in the, the eye of the beholder? If you say, think that someone's mad, then that makes them mad. And by the way, mad here, I'm using the word insane, right? Not mad, the informal, more colloquial way to use mad, which of course means angry. Here we're talking about insanity. But generally, the effect is humorous. He's overly verbose, he's trying to sound impressive, and he's clearly embarrassed by the contents of the letter. I, I love it. He, he says, oh, it's an ill phrase, a vile phrase, beautified. And then he reads on, in her excellent white bosom, these are, etc. And he kind of tries to find a more uh, suitable phrase. But it is ultimately trying to show that he has this kind of impressive diagnosis of Hamlet. The second part of his speech is also kind of self-serving, self-aggrandizing claim of competency as a father. So he stresses multiple times how Ophelia is obedient to him. So line 115 says, in her duty and obedience, she gave me the letters. Um, he goes on to say, line 113, this in her obedience. Again, talking about the letters. What do you think of me? Line 139. It's That's a rhetorical question, which actually he wants answered. Um, he wants Claudius to say that he thinks he's really cool. And then lines 142 to 143 says, as I perceived it before my daughter told me. In other words, I noticed this before Ophelia came to me. And then line 154, he says, she took the fruits of my advice. So he's trying to explain, portray himself as a very 
good father doing his good job of surveilling his daughter. Noticeable that eventually Gertrude eventually concedes. It might be the fact that Hamlet's um, madness is down to rejected love. But I think as a director, you could easily have her say this. This is line 163 in an unconvincing manner or unconvinced manner. It may be hmm, very like. But as I said before, or hinted at before, Polonius in this scene acts as a foil to Hamlet's erratic behavior. So his response to Hamlet helps us understand more about Hamlet and actually a lot about Polonius as well. And when we'll see in a minute when Hamlet is faking madness, Polonius actually thinks he's saying something really insightful. And that helps us understand a lot about both Polonius's character and Hamlet, plus it creates comedy. So he is a perfect foil for Hamlet. Well, hello everyone. I'm here with a very special guest today, and uh, we are going to be talking about birds. It is, of course, bird migration season, and we want to give you some hints about how you can attract birds to your garden and to your backyard. You might see some very special ones at this time of year. So with me in the studio, studio, I'm very fortunate to have Rubeus Hagrid. He's the gamekeeper at Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry. Hello, Mr. Hagrid. Hello there, how are you? Oh, very well, thank you. Now, tell me about some of the birds we can expect to see during migration season. Well, so, uh, well, you're going to see lots of hummingbirds. They'll, they'll be coming in for the summer, but there'll be some that will be coming in migrating. Um, you get, often get Anna's hummingbirds. Those are the ones that uh, live here most of the year round. But you might get Rufus hummingbirds, black-chinned hummingbirds, Allen's hummingbirds, lots of different kinds. And they're wonderful to look at. They're usually quite tame, not the kind of creatures I like to uh, generally... Uh, frequent with, you know, the blast-ended scroots. They are certainly not. Oh, wonderful. Excellent. Yes. Well, we're not going to get too many blast-ended scroots, obviously. Oh, no, I, I, I should hope not. Well, anyway. Um, so, how do we attract hummingbirds? Well, it's very simple. You, you need your uh, hummingbird feeder, which you can get from a target, you know, go there, stock up on toilet paper, and uh, get yourself a hummingbird feeder. And then you want to take about, oh, about two cups of boiling water. And then you'll want to dissolve about a cup of sugar in it. So, right, so two cups of water and one cup of sugar. Yeah, that's right. And now, now don't go with any of this uh, foolish, organic, highfalutin sugar, cane sugar stuff. Just go with your bog-standard white granulated sugar from Target, okay? Very simple. The hummingbirds don't like the organic stuff, and, and you certainly don't want to get that red, horrible food coloring either. Just get the regular stuff. Okay, regular stuff. Now, I always heard that it's four cups of water to one cup of sugar for the ideal solution. Well, that's right, because once you've dissolved the sugar in the water, you're then going to add two more cups of room temperature water. You let that mixture cool, and then you'll add it to your hummingbird feeder. Wonderful. Excellent. Now, how often should we change out the, the, the water in a hummingbird feeder? Oh, well, really, you should be doing it every day, every other day, but you could probably leave it about a week or so. Excellent. 
wonderful. Um, any other suggestions? Well, you might be attracting Orioles to your garden if you have a, a hummingbird feeder. They do tend to like that. They're a little bit naughty. They shouldn't be on there. It's for the hummingbirds alone, really. But you'll be getting hooded Orioles and maybe a Baltimore Oriole if you're if you're lucky, or a Bullock's Oriole. Sounds fascinating. Oh yes, the lovely birds they are. And be on the lookout for the, the warblers. You've got some white-crowned sparrows coming through and some yellow-rumped warblers I saw this morning on my run. You run? Well, waddle, really, but, you know, they were, uh, but they're beautiful birds, beautiful plumage. Very, very bright and, and spring plumage. Wonderful. Um, any further final hints? Oh, well, yes, uh, probably good idea to get a, uh, a, a kind of a shallow bowl and fill it up with water. You'll get all kinds of things. Maybe you get bluebirds or some uh, a scrub jay or a mockingbird or two. Goldfinches are around this time of year. So uh, good luck to you and I hope you uh, get to see some lovely birds. Well, thank you, Mr. Hagrid. It's lovely to see you. And what will you be doing during this spring? Oh, well, I've uh, got to go see the unicorns in the Forbidden Forest. Excellent. Well, we'll leave you to it. Well, that was uh, our time with uh, a little bird hour. Not an hour, just a few minutes. I hope you enjoyed it. And um, those are actually our real suggestions. Enjoy. So this particular section of the podcast is going to look at Hamlet's behavior with Polonius. We, we see two elements of Hamlet's behavior with Polonius and then with his friends Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. This section is going to look at Hamlet's behavior with Polonius. I, I do want to point out, though, I should have added it to the previous section, but Polonius's role as a supposed protective father immediately contradicted, by the way, line 177, when he talks about his plan. When he says his, he says his plan to kind of make sure to confirm Hamlet's lunacy is to do with his unrequited love for Ophelia. After having boasted about how protective he is of Ophelia, he then says, when Hamlet is going to walks around all the time, he's going to, it says, line 176, I'll loose my daughter to him. In other words, I'll kind of turn her loose, almost like an animal or like something that's not human, using her to prove his own hypothesis. So the dehumanization of Ophelia there is something that you might not have picked up on, but we'll see later on. And again, it, it's in stark contrast to what he claims, but it fits with this overall narrative of him dealing with Ophelia so long as it's to do with his own honor and reputation, nothing to do with Ophelia's you know, well-being. Anyway, when if we want to get a sense of Hamlet's behavior, we actually do need to go back before he actually enters to get a sense of his transformation. Remember, we've been told that Hamlet has been transformed. That's what Claudius says. In fact, he says, the exterior nor the inward man resembles what it was. That's all the way back line five and six. So Claudius says that actually he looks different, and so we should probably expect when Hamlet shows up to him to kind of look a little bit different. Uh, Polonius claims that Hamlet has exhibited the classic love sickness symptoms, and we have no reason to think that um, Polonius is lying here. So you think about what Hamlet has gone through, lines 156 to 160. He says that Hamlet has become depressed. 
that he stopped eating. That's the, the word fast, right? Like breakfast. He stopped eating. He stopped sleeping, right? A, a watch. He became lightheaded and then eventually mad. So this kind of declining, Polonius calls it a declension. Um, and so that's kind of what we can expect to see of Hamlet. He, he has been changed. So physically, he probably appears, you know, well, he certainly would look, I think, a little bit different. But Hamlet here in this scene, and I think it's pretty obvious to see, is using the guide of madness to tease Polonius and to make him out to be a fool. He obviously wants this madness to get back to get back to the king. Um, and in this scene, he Hamlet alternates between playfulness and eccentricity. So he very starts off very well, very sorry, very immediately by calling Polonius a fishmonger which means just someone who sells fish, but it does have a double meaning. Um, it has, is often used to describe a pimp, a pimp. So it would make sense and kind of falls in with this whole idea of Polonius loosing his daughter on, um, on Hamlet. And perhaps he has overheard that part, but it, it kind of is an interesting thing that, that Polonius sees as him being eccentric and weird but Hamlet is actually saying something significant. Um, line, 20, line 210, when Polonius asks him what he's reading, Hamlet kind of goes, words, 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 kind of appealing to, appearing to be kind of insane. Um, lines 215 to 218, he kind of playfully mocks Polonius's age, which Polonius doesn't really pick up on, right? He says, it says here, line 215, that old men have gray beards. Remember, he's probably talking to someone who has a gray beard. That their faces are wrinkled, their eyes purging thick amber and plum tree gum, that they have plentiful lack of wit together with most weak hams. So playfully teasing. And then in line 231 to 235, Polonius says, I'm, I will take my leave of you. And Hamlet takes this literally and says, you cannot, sir, take anything from me that I more willingly part with all. Accept my life, accept my life, accept my life. And again, Polonius would be kind of raising his eyebrows. What on earth do you mean by this? And part of this is kind of gibberish. But at the same time, this repetition of accept my life and this reference to death and dying does help us understand a little bit Hamlet's you know, state of mind. But when he's actually speaking gibberish... Polonius also thinks that Hamlet's actually being really insightful. So all the way line 201 to 209, um, he's talking about Ophelia, like, have you a daughter, conceptions of blessing, but as your daughter may conceive, friend, you know, look to it. And Polonius says, wow, he's still harping on my daughter, but he didn't know who I was. He said I was a fishmonger. Like, how is that possible? He doesn't, he's not, doesn't pick up on it. But then I love this part. It's really funny, actually. He says, oh, he's far gone. And truly in my youth, I suffered much, much extremity for love. In other words, oh, I was very much like this when I was young, when I was young and in love. It's great. Um, by the way, it's interesting to note that Hamlet here is not actually speaking in iambic pentameter. And I have, I can't confirm this, but it seems to me quite often that when Hamlet is pretending to be mad, he's speaking in iambic pentameter. And when he's being genuine, um, he's, he is. I don't think that's the case throughout, but that's something I, I've picked up a little bit. Um, and then line uh, 
line 220 to 229, um, Hamlet goes on to say, For yourself, sir, shall grow as old as I am. If like a crab you could go backward, like if you could go back in time. And Polonius, which, I mean, you know, it's just speaking a bunch of rubbish, really. But Polonius says, though this be madness, yet there is method in it. There's the classic, there's method in the madness. That's where this comes from. Um, and, uh, but Hamlet does show that he knows what's going on. Right at the beginning, uh, line 192, he says, I would you were so honest a man, right? He is essentially saying to Polonius, I know you're faking it. And then right at the end of this little section, line 237, he says, aside these tedious old fools. In other words, what an idiot. Um, one commentator calls this idea, this privileged rudeness, right? Throughout the play, Hamlet will be actually quite rude to Polonius, but because he's a prince and Polonius is just an advisor, he can do that anyway. He uses the guise of madness or the fact that Polonius thinks he's mad to be able to say this. And Polonius, of course, has to therefore bear all this abuse and rudeness with stoicism and he can't respond. And in a court where no one speaks the truth, Polonius is forced to accept and to take on and to bear this rudeness that Hamlet continually pours onto him. Let's have a look now at Hamlet's behavior with Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. These are his friends. We don't know exactly the last time that he saw them. It was clearly a while back. And, but they apparently go back, you know, since they were young. And so, their appearance also causes Hamlet to behave erratically because right away Hamlet recognizes that Claudius is behind this. He is actually briefly energized by their appearance, but it, it is an awkward reunion. And if you read over this kind of personification of fortune as a woman, um, starting in lines uh, 245 all the way through line 254. It's an awkward reunion, as I said. It's marked by kind of male banter and sexual innuendo. And if you look back through that, you can kind of see the, the, the innuendo as they're talking about fortune as a woman. Uh, perhaps some more fuel for the Hamlet as a misogynist crowd. I'm not sure about that. I think it's just... Uh, the way that these men find a common thing to talk about. And he's kind of responding a little bit to what Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are saying. But he does immediately see them for what they are. And then when he does finally question them directly, they're clearly very uncomfortable and bad liars. He says, no, no, we weren't sent for. And then eventually they, they come clean. And in this part... Hamlet's deep thoughts are really misunderstood or not comprehended by them. And, and one can imagine them exchanging puzzled looks as Hamlet appears to be rather disengaged and, and, and rambling at times. And then the times they do kind of try to kind of engage with him, they are out of their depth, both kind of really logically and emotionally. So there's some of the things that Hamlet says that Rosencrantz and Guildenstern find puzzling is the first thing you know he says Denmark's a prison 
line 262. Uh, and then when they disagree with him, he says, well, there's nothing either good or bad, but thinking makes it so, which sounds a bit strange, but actually makes sense because he's saying, look, okay, that's your opinion. You can say that anything is good or bad in your opinion. So that's line 268 to 270. Um, he then goes on to say, I could be bounded in a nutshell and count myself the king of infinite space, but that I have bad dreams. It's a really powerful quote, right? Saying that, yes, I could be in prison. It's not, I could be shut up in something tiny, but I'm, I'm plagued. My brain is, is plagued. I can't slow down. I have bad dreams. And then when they do try to finally kind of use logic with him, lines 282 to 284, he, he outwits them. You know, they're trying to talk about, well, ambition is a shadow, shadow is a dream, dream you know, and, and finally Hamlet says, okay, really? If a dream is, if, if ambition is just a shadow shadow, which is what Rosencrantz says, then he says, well, our beggars then are bodies. So our beggars, because they don't have an ambition, they're real. And monarchs and outstretched heroes are the beggars' shadows, because if ambition is just a shadow, then people who do have ambition aren't really real. And so Hamlet kind of turns the tables on them, and then he says, ah, don't worry about it. Let's just, by my fate, I cannot reason. He's being ironic, he's being sarcastic, but he sees that Rosencrantz and Guildenstern don't really understand what he's talking about. He's already lost patience with them. Shall we to court? In other words, let's go. Um, so their friendship doesn't seem particularly strong. Right away, Hamlet confronts them. They're unable to be honest with him. And then within a few minutes, Hamlet says, I I'm done here, let's go. And it's not until Rosencrantz and Guildenstern start talking about the arrival of the actors that Hamlet actually engages in a, a real conversation with them. So Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, perhaps not quite as close as Claudius and Gertrude think that Hamlet, uh, that not quite as close to Hamlet as Claudius and Gertrude think that they are. Well, thank you for joining me in this rather extended podcast. I wanted to end, as always, with some final thoughts and connections. The our introduction to Rosencrantz and Guildenstern is is actually kind of a pivotal moment. If you if you don't know much about them, they are a kind of a very famous duo in 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 dramatic history. They have actually even spawned uh, a I don't know if it's fan fiction, but they've spawned a a play by Tom Stoppard, which was written just a few years ago, called Rosencrantz and Guildenstern Are Dead. It's a great play, if particularly once you've read Hamlet. It basically, it's the story of Hamlet, but from the point of view of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, but them having these kind of existential crises about identity and life, even deeper than perhaps Hamlet's are. So it's, it's great. It's really funny and actually quite poignant in times. But these two are going to find themselves caught up in royal intrigue way above their heads. They are serving Claudius, they're trying to help Hamlet, and they're pretty much failing at both. You'll see that their report to Claudius in the next scene is, is they've basically failed to figure out what's going on with Hamlet. However, you know, when I think about how we apply this to the human condition, I, I think about Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, who are friends with Hamlet, but clearly not that intimate in their friendship. 
It does reveal, though, how difficult it is to talk to someone whom you think is struggling. You know, the first thing that that they say when Hamlet asks them how they are, they, they say, "Well, happy、uh, in that we are not over happy, like not trying to seem too happy because they think that will make Hamlet sadder." And, and I think most of the time, people who are struggling just want presents. They don't want. Lots of talking, but Rosencrantz and Guildenstern seem determined to try to cheer Hamlet up. This kind of this more snap out of it language, which we know already that Hamlet finds tiresome, right? Your your mind is the prison, says Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, and you know, and and Hamlet is almost yeah, you think,、um, and、uh, it's not really helpful. We're also seeing this gradual distancing of Claudius from Hamlet. Earlier on, right, he he. Wanted to appear to be this kind of indulgent stepfather, and either his patience has now worn thin, or he is getting suspicious. And he's already started using "your son" when talking to Gertrude about Hamlet, not "our son," which he uses in Act One, Scene Two. So the language starts to change. I also find myself asking why Gertrude and Claudius put so much credence in Polonius. Claudius is very smart. Gertrude is. Seems to be fairly insightful and and has instincts, but they seem to give all this time to Polonius. Perhaps Claudius enjoys the flattery, but to the audience, Polonius is not much more than comic relief and a foil for Hamlet. And Claudius and Gertrude, I think, could probably be portrayed as getting increasingly impatient with Claudius. But more than anything, this scene is an opportunity to see Hamlet moving between pretense and eccentricity, and real emotion and depth of thought. Perhaps there's no greater indication of how trapped he feels by the energy he gets briefly from the arrival of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, and then by the announcement that the players, these traveling actors, are coming. We also saw in Act One, Scene Two, when Horatio arrives, and even earlier in this scene, when his interaction with Polonius engages his more playful side. When he says Denmark's a prison, we can believe him. And for me, there's nothing more moving in this scene, especially since we know how much he really is struggling. Than his comment on humankind, starting on line 327. He says this: "What a piece of work is a man! How noble in reason! How infinite in faculties! In form and moving! How express and admirable! In action, how like an angel! In apprehension, how like a god!" The beauty of the world, the paragon of animals, and yet to me, what is this quintessence of dust? All these positive elements, all right, all balanced beautifully, listed one after the other, contrast deeply with the final clause. What is this quintessence of dust? It also hints at his obsession with death, and, foresh- and foreshadows his famous conversation with the grave digger in Act Five, Scene One. All we are, for all our achievements, is merely dust. And for me, these are the best parts of the play—the moments when we, the audience, get an insight into Hamlet that no one else he's interacting with seems to see. It's like our own private little joke. And as the play goes on, these moments of clarity seem to be overtaken by moments of either deep anger and furious emotion, or even by increasingly erratic and unpredictable behaviour. So go back and reread what he says to Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. Mull his words. Think about them. Say them out loud. They are powerful and poignant, and we haven't even got to to be or not to be yet. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening.